Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. Hey, Anna, this week we get to interview Linda Rostad. I know you're really excited about this one, Felix. Oh my gosh, you can't imagine. <laughs> Triste caravana de recuerdos por mi mente ha pasado Rastros de nostalgia que ha dejado un amor y ha fracasado Mid-career, she took a stand and reclaimed her culture because not many people knew that she was Mexican-American from Tucson while she was making all of her pop music. And then in the 80s, she made these mariachi albums that just completely blew the lid off of contemporary mariachi music. Which is really fascinating because I feel like in today's world, we're seeing this happen all the time now. This has now become like the cliched story almost, where you have like pop queens like Selena Gomez, Cristina Aguilera, all these people who do the mainstream pop thing for a bit, and then here's the Spanish language album. But during Linda's time, I don't think anyone was doing that, right? It was a rarity, and I think mostly because during that time, you know, she's a product of the 70s, you know, mid-70s, early 70s rock and roll thing, right? Like, there were much more genre-specific, and the record companies didn't take chances. And in the case of Linda Ronstadt, it was something that she wanted to do, but wasn't really able to do it. I did the record because I love the song so much, and I thought they were better than the songs that I was getting from publishers for American pop stuff. I just liked it better, and it suited my voice better, too, because I'd sung it since I was a little kid. Not professionally, but, you know, sing along with the records, la, la, la. And my family sings a lot of stuff in Spanish, so I knew all those songs. And it just seemed like they were better songs, and, and people would like them, and it turned out I was right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why were they better to you? Better composed and better crafted. Mexicans value poetry greatly. They call it a scattering of jades, jade being the most precious thing to to the Indians. And the the Mayans call poetry a scattering of jades. They value it. They they think you need poetry to state anything philosophical or emotional or intellectual process. can only best be explained through poetry. And so I had a whole pile of songs with beautiful lyrics because they're very poetic images mostly farming and ranching images. Mm. That's what I, I sang rancheras and mapangos. That's a form of Mexican country music. We have talked to other artists here on, on All Latino about the power and the poetry of rancheras, boleros, things like that from the older generation of songwriters. One of the conclusions we come to, and this is something I discovered just through living my life, is that you can't really appreciate the power and the poetry of the music unless you've lived a little bit, loved and lost, etc. Well, I appreciated it when I was five years old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much I, I didn't live very much when I was five, but I, I loved, loved the music. 
I just, it was Sunday afternoon to me when my dad would put on some of those records and we'd all sing along. And it was just family and Sunday and beautiful, beautiful music. The craft is, is extraordinary. Mexico is such a diverse country, even with its indigenous population. You walk three blocks, you get a different language, different costumes, different music, different food. So the cuisine of Sonora, Mexico, is not anything like the cuisine of Oaxaca. If you want complex food like that, you have to go to Oaxaca. But in Sonora, you get beans and tortillas. <laughs> and you get exceptional tortillas that are really big, the biggest, biggest steering wheel. And they have a great texture. <laughs> and they use a different kind of flour that has flavor. God, you're making me so hungry. Yeah. There was a time when I was a kid where we were in Patagonia, Arizona, and my dad made us walk across the border just to get the exact huge flour tortillas that you're talking about, like in a day. <laughs> I took them for granted because we had somebody in our house that could make them. You have to start when you're a child to learn how to make those big ones. But the little gorditas are, are good, too. I love those. My tia used to make them outdoors on a kamal over the fire. And they tasted so good when they came out hot off the kamal with a little butter on them. That's all you need. <laughs> or some beans. Beans and tortillas love each other. Hearing you talk about your, your these childhood memories and the way that food is tied into music, I have to take a moment to say that for people my generation, I'm 64 years old, People of my generation and even older, when you made those records, they were so appreciated, sincerely and heartfelt appreciation for you expressing your cultural identity just the way we all have or the way that we all wanted to. It was such a bold cultural statement. And I talked to so many people over the years who said that those records, they were special. All the songs we've heard before, but they were special in that being able to claim or at least respect the identity in such a public way. Did you get any feedback like that from people when you were out on tour, touring that record? Well, I was very surprised. I, my hope was that people would like the music, any audience, Anglo audience, Mexican-American audience, Mexican audience, that they would just appreciate the music because the music is so beautiful. But what I found was I, I was playing the same venues that I played with rock and roll when I toured the United States. And I got a completely different audience from the audience that came to hear me sing Blue Bayou. And they were multi-generation audiences. Like usually Americans will bring a date or a girlfriend or something like that. But Mexican audiences showed up, mother, grandfather, grandchildren. Every generation showed up and they knew where to yell and scream and where to be quiet. That's the best thing about singing to a Mexican audience. They go, ah, hi. <laughs> this is the right place and it makes the music crescendo. They don't clap out of time, and they don't sing out of tune. <laughs> well, the other thing is that Mexicans don't buy tickets ahead. So every time we went to, we had no advanced ticket sales. And then the place would be packed for the concert. I love it. That was shocking. My promoters had to get used to that. But, you know, Mexicans live in the moment. My plan for the future. It looks so grim. Listening to you talk about all of these things, you sound so confident in yourself and in your decision to pivot musically like you did. Was there hesitation at the time, or were you just like, I know I need to return to this part of myself? When I was a little girl, I used to hear groups like Trio Tariakuri and Trio Calaveras. 
sing upon those, and I wanted to learn them so badly, but I didn't have the lyrics. So I couldn't learn exactly to sing along with them. And finally, I got the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that music so much. I love the little Vetran, Chabela Vargas, Amalia Mendoza. They're world-class wonderful singers. And they're known in other parts of the world, too, but not as well as they should have been. Lola Beltran was really the Edith Piaf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so was Chevrolet Vargas. And Molly Mendoza is the most musical of all of them. She's really a good singer. It's a particular kind of music from a certain region. My brother and sister and I used to sing it, and my two brothers and I used to sing trios. I included them on some of my records, my brothers singing with me. You know, they were people that had regular lives. They had My sister was the mother of five or six. My brother was chief of police in Tucson. And they didn't sing every day, but I could call them up and have them come sing a harmony part, and they do it perfectly. We just had enough practice singing when we were kids. When you were taking this music and, and making it your own and actually producing it, how did your relationship to it change from when you were a little girl and you would sing? The guy that co-produced my record, Ruben Fuentes, owns Mariachi Vargas. And I used Mariachi Vargas on the record, and he co-produced it with my producer Peter Asher. He wanted to do more modern sounding, more city sounding stuff, and I kept bringing in pictures of cows <laughs> and putting them on the, on the wall and bringing in these ancient monaural records that I loved as a child that I wanted to sound like this. And we compromised, and we made it. I wanted it to at least not be any later than 1959, but I preferred the 30s and 40s for music, Mexican music. But it just made me more convinced that the stuff I'd heard as a child was world-class stuff, and I wanted to sing it. When you first got to Los Angeles, did you think about recording in Spanish back then? I wanted to start recording in Spanish when I first arrived in Los Angeles. I arrived in Los Angeles with a copy of La Negra, and I played it for my band, the Stone Ponies at the time. <laughs> my bandmates, and they, they couldn't comprehend the rhythm. They, there's just no way they could play it. It's counted in a 6-8 kind of. Right. Call it 6-8 and a half. <laughs> it's hard to count and it's hard to copy. It took me a lot of woodshedding to get to be able to sing those songs. And they include a lot of falsetto, too. I recorded Blue Bayou in Spanish. Anyway, the record company wasn't interested in me recording in Spanish. And I recorded a song that my bass player and I wrote with my dad in Spanish. Siento mi vida. That didn't make any impression on the record company. Finally, I said, I've given you so many hits. I'm going to do what I please in this record. And to their credit, they jumped up and helped me promote it. And my producer and manager, Peter Asher, was really a hero. Because he didn't know anything about Mexican music. He never, never heard one song. We made a pretty good record. That first record was had too much echo on the strings. And it was, sounded too modern. <laughs> the second, Mas Canciones, was better, I think. 
because we, we produce it, George and I, my engineer. Were you then always trying to find a way to sing in Spanish since since you started your Always. Career? Always. Wow. So if you had it your way, you would have been singing Chavela Vargas since day one. Well, I would have been hanging out with the mariachis down at the Million Dollar Theater in L.A., which I think is closed now. But they were all coming through there. I didn't know that. I was in my little Hollywood bubble of the, tr- the troubadour, you know. And they didn't write about it in the newspaper that Mariachi Vargas was going to be at the Million Dollar Theater. You said no. And I didn't know. I lived in a different part of town. So I wish I had started out woodshedding with those guys when I was 19. And I didn't know where to find the lyrics. You know, we didn't have the internet then. And the lyrics were, were sometimes printed in newspaper print versions of cancioneras. Mm-hmm. And I had one. It had the words for Rogaciano in it, but that's the only song I put on the album. But if I'd been going to Mexico regularly, I was only eight or ten. It's hard for me to get down to Mexico by myself. <laughs> but um, if I'd been going regularly to Mexico and looking in the supermarkets for those cancioneras, I could have written more songs. If you could go back, would you do your career differently? Would you have exclusively sang in Spanish your entire career? No, I wouldn't have exclusively sung in Spanish. I would have done what I pleased, but I would have sung in Spanish a lot earlier. And maybe tried to establish an audience in Mexico. I mean, people bought the record there in great numbers, but I didn't like to perform there because the place, they didn't value ranchera music very much. They put me on TV and they put the band 40 feet away. I couldn't see them or hear them. They make me the focus of things. They take the mariachi for granted. They take the songs for granted, the material for granted. I didn't like that. And also, places you had to perform if you were singing rancheras rather than the palenques, where they have the rooster fights. You stand there in the blood, and you're you're lit by fluorescent lighting. It wasn't my. I'm a theater act. I'm a concert artist, not a not a bar girl. <laughs> We'll get back to our conversation with Linda Ronstadt right after this break. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Quién Are We is a podcast that celebrates the stories and joy of Latin people. Your identity is where you grew up. I think I belong in Colombia. Who you grew up with. My sister and I would make up English words. The foods you ate. I owe my life to the flour tortilla. The traditions that you celebrate, the things that make you happy. Listen to Quién Are We, a podcast from Colorado Public Radio, part of the NPR Network.
Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. You know, Linda, what we've been covering on the uh, podcast here for the last dozen years or so, you know, the music industry has changed so much that in some parts they actually look for artists to sing in Spanish now. What a difference. Well, Selena Gomez recorded in Spanish. She's got a good accent. She's Mexican-American. I'm glad she did. But the funny thing is still a band like um, Los Tigres del Norte, or a fantastic band, can outdraw the Rolling Stones in any American city, practically, that has a Mexican population. But nobody in Anglo music has ever heard of them. Only Mexican-Americans know them. So in a sense, there's still boxes around genres that prevent spillover, cross-cultural spillover, cross-genre spillover, especially in a case like Los Tigres. And in some ways, my culture that's highly localized, there's a difference between Tex-Mex music and mariachi. There's a difference between Tex-Mex music and the equivalent waltzes, Creole waltzes, and they play them differently in Mexico than they do in Texas, even though it's right across the border. Because Mexicans don't use the blue note, and Tex-Mex music uses the blue note. Paco Jimenez plays with the blue note. It's a subtle nuance that it's different, but it's different. Mariachi isn't, there's all kinds of Mexican music that isn't mariachi, you know, that's regional. I love the traditional stuff best. I love the mariachi because they can do all the regions. But I love to go into the regions like Yucatan and way down in the south of Mexico where they have different styles of music, different styles of dancing. Since you, earlier in your career, weren't able to quite start singing in Spanish in the way that you wanted to or at the time that you wanted to, is there something we can hear in your music that you did end up recording in English that was inspired by that or that you kind of tried to sneak in from that desire to sing in Spanish? What you hear probably is desperation. (laughs) Desperate to do it and desperate (laughs) to do it well. And desperately afraid that I would not. I had to work really hard to get that step up to professional speed because I'd sing it with my family, but I'd sing a harmony, mouth the words, you know, la la la. I didn't know, and I had to be more professional for to record. And I was learning. I got all the stuff that I recorded on the first album got way better because I got it took it on the road and I started performing it every night. And I got real confident about it and real creative with it. And then some of that showed up on Mas Canciones. Mi vida ilusión. 
So was your tendency to do all ballads, maybe that was a reflection of you singing, wanting to sing boleros. They turned out to be very accessible to me because I'd done the record with Nelson Riddle, and it's the same voice that I use. So I'd, I'd gotten that little instrument sharpened up pretty, pretty well. But I went for country music with the mariachi stuff. And then when I sang on Frenesy, I, I went more urban. One of the things that strikes me about the mariachi records was the way that so many people had no idea that you had a Mexican heritage. Well, I'd say it in every interview. I'd say I'm Mexican-American, German-Mexican. But I have white skin and a German surname. And so the fact that my great-grandfather married into a long-established family in Mexico that came in the 1700s just didn't seem to matter to them, and they, didn't, they wouldn't write about it. They just ignored it. How did that feel to you, that they would ignore that part of you? My peers? Mm-hmm. Mariachi was something you played a, on a soundtrack when you were in a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't realize it was real music. I've always identified as Mexican. Was that hard, though, for you to, to have your peers think something like that and you to, to value this music? I just figured they needed some enlightenment. <laughs> how do you feel about how you're connected to your, your Mexicanness now? Well, I have a lot to do for the last 30 years with a group called Los Ensontles, ah. which is a cultural academy. And they teach kids how to do the really traditional Mexican stuff, traditional dances, traditional instruments. They play the jarana, 12-string guitar, and things that are particularly Mexican. They went to Mexico. We took them to Mexico, and they said they remember the heritage of Mexico better than we do because things are taken for granted. When you take your culture to a new place, you want to preserve it. You keep the music and the food and the literature, and you make your life, your new life with it. And sometimes people wind up caring for things that, that are discarded in the original country. Calling back to your the land where you were born and your earliest days going back and forth, as well as the long history of recorded music you have, including the mariachi records, there is no argument. There is no other way to think about you as other than a Mexican-American from Tucson. Oh, good. Finally. I'm 76 years old. I remember telling somebody in an interview in Japan that I was Mexican. He said, no. They love Mexican music, by the way, in Japan. But he wouldn't allow me to be in that, in that category. He said, you are the quintessential American girl on your roller skates. And I said, well, guess what, buddy? I eat beans and tortillas. <laughs> On behalf of this baby boomer Chicano, I want to thank you for maintaining your ties to your culture and expressing it through music because it's something that my peers and I know my mother really love that record a lot. So it's my opportunity to say thank you for reclaiming your culture in such a very, very musical way. Well, tell, well thank you. And tell her to listen to the second record. It's better than the first one. <laughs> I was just learning on the first one. <laughs> Esconde detrás las trancas, chatita, que viene bravo y aviéntame tu rebozo, mi vida, pa capotearlo. Toro, toro, toro. Uro, entra del arco, que mi plata chula toro. 
Okay, can I just say that it was a thrill to be able to thank her for those recordings? Did mm. I did I did I sound too fangirl? You did not sound too fangirl. I you know what's so funny is I like so I call my dad before this interview because I was like, this is so crazy. Like you and Linda have lived this parallel life in Tucson. Like there's so many connections. And he was like, oh, yes, yes, that's true. And I was like, what was it like for you when she released that record in Spanish? And he was like, oh, I really liked it. And I was like, yeah, but it was really exciting, right? Like to hear that she was doing this record. And he was like, well, I knew she was Mexican. I'm like, yeah, but like it was cool. And he's like, well, no, but I knew she was. So like she was going to release a record in Spanish. And I was like... Where did his assuredness come from that she was... I mean, Linda was trying to get back to her Mexican identity. I guess my dad knew that somehow. I don't know. It was really matter-of-fact. Well, that's interesting because, as she said in other interviews, you know, her family is so well-known there. Her siblings, her cousins, the Rodstadt family in Tucson is established as a Mexican-American family. Mm -hmm. And I guess if your dad's coming from, from Tucson around the same time, he probably knew those knew the family reputation. And I think that there was something in Tucson at that time. It was a really distinct community and, and culture and space for this kind of like really cross-border existence, right? Where you had all of these Mexican families who had for years been crossing back and forth across the border. It was There was a lot more fluidity in that time. And I think specifically in, in Tucson, it was really a town at least the way that I've perceived it from my dad's stories that was built on that community. The way that Linda talks about her childhood, right, it makes sense that it felt so integral to who she was. The other thing that strikes me from the conversation was what kind of world or what kind of world of music we would have had if the record industry had not been so Mm close-minded and allowed her to record in Spanish. Right? Oh, yeah. What kind of music would we have and what kind of musical legacy she would have? It's yeah. already profound. Mm-hmm. It's already incredibly profound, her legacy. Yeah. I mean, she literally said the words desperation. Yeah. Like, she so, so truly desperately wanted to honor this part of herself in her music. And it's just mind-blowing to me that it, it took so long for her to be able to do that. And then also, like, the way that it shaped her her life and her career since she was actually able to do that, it almost, like, I almost got the sense that it felt like she has spent the rest of her career just trying to make up for the fact that she wasn't able to honor her Mexican self early in her career. At least that's kind of what it sounded like to me. Perhaps, but I think also... When I think of Linda Ronstadt, I think of just the scope of her musical output. I have those albums that she did with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra where she's singing things that Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and all the great jazz singers used to Mm -hmm. sing, the great American songbook stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just as good. It's just as profound, right? Mm -hmm. And it speaks to, if you have the mariachi albums on, on one hand, even the first one, even though she does, she she likes the second one better. If you have those on one hand, right? <laughs> Very and, vocal about that. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you have the stuff like the Nelson Riddle album. That's a bicultural existence mm-hmm. that we all live. And I think that that's something that's really cool too to think about her now in the context of today and and where we are as a, as a society, at least, or what we're moving towards. And that like, I think people are a lot more comfortable with the reality of that bicultural existence for people in this country. And I think that 
you know, the way that she talked about distancing herself from, like, she literally described it, the quintessential American girl. She's like, that was not me. That was not who I was. And I think that I'm so curious to think about what she would have looked like today in that she could have both embraced that identity and been like, I am the quintessential American girl. And that means that I am both riding around on my roller skates and listening to rancheras in my living room. And like all of those things are true about myself. Where would we have been if that was the case? Hard to say, but I am certainly glad with what we have. I'm a big fan of hers and always have been. And it was just a thrill to talk to her. And it's a thrill to share it with all of you who are listening because that's the end of this week's podcast. You like that segue? I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> that was your best one yet, Felix, I gotta say. <laughs> you have been listening to Alt Latino. Felix has never been so smooth. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. Our editor is the great Hazel Sills. Our production assistant is B. O'Reilly. And the woman who keeps the trains running on time is Grace Chung. And also big thanks to our audio producer, Ron Scalzo. And the jefe-in-chief, Keith Jenkins, VP of Music and Visuals at NPR. I'm Felix Contreras. I'm Ana Maria Sayer. Thanks for listening. See you next week. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.